Well, I've been mentioning for a few days, and I cannot wait uh, to meet Dr. Rick Hodes. Dr. Rick Hodes is the subject of a book by Marilyn Berger entitled This is a Soul. He is the subject of an HBO documentary. If you search him online, you will see uh, many articles and some incredible um, uh, stories and accounts of what he's been doing over the last 25-plus years. And he is in our studio this morning, Dr. Rick Hodes. Welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you. Good morning. It's my pleasure to be here. I greatly appreciate that. So at some point, um, uh, you I guess, what was this, in the 70s or 80s, you graduate college, right? I graduated from college. Okay. And yes. then you decide... With a degree in geography. In geography. <laughs> Very practical. <laughs> what can you do? Yeah, that's what you could do. Like English literature, right? Yeah, what can you do with like a degree like that? And then at, at some point, I guess you're sitting back and thinking, what do I want to do next? And what opportunity comes your way around that time? So, but it, it actually became a little more complicated because I graduated from college. I had no money. I had a degree in geography. I painted a few houses, <clears throat> saved up a bit of money, went to California, went uh, hiking in the mountains for the summer. Then I decided to go to Alaska, so I hitchhiked from California to Alaska. And just to make it clear, you're from New York State. Like I'm from you, Long Island. Yeah, you're one. You're, 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 I'm a local guy. Right, exactly. So. A local Jewish kid. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not always uh, Not always is that uh, background filled with adventure, but right. in your case it was. And so I went up to Fairbanks, Alaska, and I lived in Fairbanks, Alaska for several years and thought about my life. And had a lot of time, you know, in, in the wintertime, the sun goes up, comes up at 11 in the morning, right. and it sets at 3 in the afternoon. So if you don't happen to look out the window during that period of time, you're in darkness for more than 24 hours. Right. And uh, <clears throat> I thought about my life, and I decided the best thing I could do is become a doctor. So I went back to the University of Alaska. I did one year of pre-medical studies. And during your college years, you had never considered going that route? Uh, it was in the back of my mind, but I didn't... I didn't uh, why would the Alaskan experience make you want to be a doctor? You know, it gave me time to think about my life and what's important and how I could make a difference in the world, and I decided the best thing I could do is become a doctor. Hmm. Okay. So what route do you have to take now that you decided to become a doctor? So I did pre-med at the University of Alaska, right. <clears throat> applied to a bunch of medical schools, chose to go to University of Rochester, <clears throat> New York, so now I'm starting to move south. Right. Uh, <laughs> Spent four years in Rochester, New York. Then I decided to specialize in internal medicine. So I moved south again to Baltimore. So you're so far taking a, you know, a, a somewhat normal path. Uh, something that the Jewish mothers would consider to be, you know, a reputable direction. Yeah. On the other hand, I, I somehow also knew that I wanted to do international health. So as a medical student, I spent a summer in Bangladesh. Okay. I spent a winter in South India. And those experiences you knew would be better than being in an office in Manhattan. Yeah, yeah, that's because, what I wanted be, to because do. Because what happened there that would... Because that, that exposed me to, like, <clears throat> the way most of the world lives. And where there's no medical care and people die of diarrhea and babies die because there's no doctors, things like that. So then I went, I left, <clears throat> and... Um, <clears throat> I left Rochester in Baltimore as a resident in the Johns Hopkins system. I spent time in refugee camps in Africa, and I worked in. The, I had worked also in the famine in Ethiopia. Are there a lot of medical students, a lot of colleagues doing the same thing? Or a hand at the time there wasn't. Now it's a bit fashionable, and I get letters from medical students all the time asking me to 
to well, take them as students. Yeah, and today, in fact, I have two Rochester students coming out for the summer. Right. Just I mean, today the world week. is different also. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, someone goes to Africa, they know they can be in touch with their family on a more, much more regular basis. I mean, yeah, there's free phone calls right. and, there's, and there's email. This right. was the, the days before email. Correct, so I'd, right. It's so a different be, world. I'd be in, um, you know, Alaska or in Ethiopia and I'd write a letter, right. a handwritten letter to my mom, right. and she would write a letter back, and that was communication. Right. I mean, and sounds, when you're in Bangladesh, you're hoping the letter gets to the U.S. Yeah. Right. So then, after this experience with Johns Hopkins, etc. So then I decided I wanted to spend one year teaching in Africa. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so I applied to a bunch of different things. And one of the things I applied for is a Fulbright Fellowship. The Fulbright people saw my application. They saw that I had been to Ethiopia. Ethiopia had a revolution in about 74. The emperor, Haile Selassie, had been overthrown. And the new guy who took over, who was a guy, a military person named Mengistu Haile Mariam, made turn the country in a very rigid communist direction. Mm-hmm. A very terrible period in Ethiopian history. Um, but the Americans were trying to reach out and establish a bit of cultural relations with the Mengistu government. They saw that I had been to Ethiopia because I worked in the famine in 84-85. They asked me to go back to Ethiopia, and then they said they would fund me. So I said, great. So I was funded by the Fulbright people in D.C., and I went off to Ethiopia to teach at the medical school at the university hospital, and I did that, <clears throat> intending to spend one year doing this. Right, and what were you teaching? Internal medicine. And is, is there medical school? Does, does it resemble a medical school that we have here? Like what? Yeah, what? it's a different it's a different emphasis, but um, but it's really it's it's the American curriculum, and it's two years of basic science and two years of <coughs> clinical science. Now the curriculum has changed a bit, but it was really quite traditional back then. Right, because I mean, you you, you I'm sure you get the idea what people like myself and others who have not traveled to Africa think about Ethiopia. We don't we don't imagine you know real hospitals and real medical staffs and real medical schools like the one you just described you you would tell us that it's it's slightly different than that right i mean and now things are even better because now there's 30 medical schools but at the time there was one medical school in the country and this was it and these mostly male students would compete and get a very prestigious spot as a medical student and when you're uh, experiencing this year um a teaching internal medicine at the medical school is that when you decide you're never leaving the place or i decided i could actually do something if i put my nose to the ground because I was seeing all of these diseases that first of all I had only read about in textbooks you know rheumatic heart disease you really don't see a lot of rheumatic heart disease in America and in Ethiopia you see rheumatic heart disease every day uncorrected congenital heart disease you know if you're born with a hole in your heart in New Jersey uh, sometime in the first couple of weeks of of life you can get that fixed easily In Ethiopia, people live for for decades without their holes being fixed, and they would come to me, and I would I had to I had to do something. So then I started putting together a network of people who might be able to help some of my patients. Now this is a true story. I had a kid who knocked on my door, and he looked okay, and he said, "I heard you're a new doctor in Ethiopia. I need your help." I said, "What's the problem?" And he said, "I'm Ethiopia's top." light flyweight boxer and he took out pictures of him in the boxing arena boxing for ethiopia in uganda the country next door and i said well you look fine to me and he said but i have a problem every time i train i cough up one cup of bright red blood i said really and he said and we all know that if you cough up red blood it could be tuberculosis right 
So I went to the TB hospital, and the TB hospital told me I don't have TB, but I don't know what's wrong with me. So I said, okay, well, let, come on in. And I examined him, and one of the reasons people cough up blood is because of rheumatic heart disease, because the mitral valve especially gets too narrow. <clears throat> and the normal area of the mitral valve is from four to six centimeters. And I listened, and he had very, very small mitral valve. We did an echo, and the, ar- the area was 0.6. Okay, so he had almost no blood going from one right. chamber to the other. And then... I needed to do something, and I said, I said, you know, there might be a surgeon here who can help you. And he said, I don't want treatment in this country. And I said, okay, well, let's see what happens. I just said, write down your name and your contact information, and we'll see. I didn't even look and see what his name was. He gave, he wrote, gave me the piece of paper, wrote it down. I put it in my desk drawer. The next week, I got mail. And I got a letter from the National Institute of Health in Washington that they sent to every doctor in America that they were doing a study of treatment of this specific disease. And they wanted to put a balloon through the two chambers of the heart to blow it up and to dilate the narrowed mitral valve. And they were asking every American doctor to send them patients. So I said, oh, I have some patients. So I wrote them a letter and I said, would you take Ethiopians? And they said, yes. <clears throat> so I call this guy, look him up, his name is Seb Sebe. I call him up and I said, I think I can send you to Washington, D.C. And <clears throat> I sent him to Washington, D.C. and he had this balloon procedure. Now he's a limo driver in California. <laughs> <laughs> he never left Washington, D.C. after that or he did go back to Ethiopia at some point? <laughs> he ended up, well, he, I think he may have come back, but then he ended right. up going, marrying somebody and, and moving to California. I asked that because you've had both experiences where you've had people come to the U.S. and never return to Ethiopia and others who maintained a, a close tie and often moved back, right? You've had, you've seen, you've seen it all. I've seen it all. Right. And I, you know, when you, when you see it all, you get a bit jaded, you right. know, and when I had a blind guy who I brought to America, who he had eye surgery, Long Island Jewish Hospital, restored his eyesight, and then he defected, and he decided he's going to stay in America. Right. That's terrible for me. Right, that harms you with the It hurts with the my government. relationship with the Ethiopian, with the American embassy. Right. And so I have to be really careful. Like, I have to err on the side of not sending people unless I'm 100% sure they're going to come back. Dr. Rick Hodes is here. Once you uh, establish, again, post that year that you're teaching internal medicine in Ethiopia, so now you're you're basically set up as a as a medical doctor, right? You're basically set up to... I was an academic physician. Right. Teaching and practicing in the in the university hospital. Right. Which is the when was the first case? The first time you came across this unique uh, back spine situation that we are not familiar with in the United States, uh, which propelled you into this whole area of medicine. So what happened was. I would see some of these cases, but I had nothing to do with spines when I was teaching at the medical school. So I ended up spending that one year I extended and that turned into two and a half years. Wow. Okay. And then I left and I did some other things and didn't have a a steady job. I had a wonderful situation in Maryland where I was working part time in a practice and I could just do whatever I want and I could read books. And then I started becoming interested in Judaism. Mm. Okay. And I'm Jewish, you know, but I don't come from an observant family. And I frankly didn't know that much about it. So I started studying and uh, started going to Israel to explore my Jewish roots. And while I was in Israel, I decided um, I was reading the Jerusalem Post, and it talked about all the problems of the Ethiopian Jews. And I decided, 
I could help them, you know. So I wrote a letter to my employer, the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, <clears throat> who I, I hardly know anything about. And I said, <clears throat> I'm an American doctor. I'm Jewish. I just spent two and a half years in Ethiopia. I speak Amharic, the Ethiopian language, and I know most of the doctors in the country. Hey. Can I help you? So they hired me to go to Ethiopia because there were 25,000 Ethiopian Jews stuck in Addis Ababa at hey. the time. And I worked. I, I was working with JDC, taking care of them. While I was working with JDC, I started volunteering in my free time, my so-called free time, at Mother Teresa's Catholic Mission, working with the nuns. And there, I met these two boys who were abandoned orphans with no known relatives who had tuberculosis of the spine. One of them had a 120-degree angle in his back, and one of them had a 95-degree angle in his back. And I knew that as they got older, as as they went into puberty and went into their growth spurts, that the spine would keep on deforming and they would become paralyzed. And then if you become paralyzed in Ethiopia, you die. Right. So that was the, that was how I got into the spines. These were the first two spinal patients yeah. you had met. Uh, and you had met Mother Teresa herself, correct? I have met Mother Teresa several times. I met Mother right. Teresa both in Calcutta and in Ethiopia. Right. And uh, in some ways, as we're about to learn... You you model yourself and what you've done after the incredible work that she's done. I mean, it's, it's certainly one of your role models in all. Absolutely, this. I think the right. world of Mother Teresa. Which rabbis or, or leaders in the Jewish world that we would know, if any of them, were influential in your in your return pursuit of you know Orthodox Judaism? Any, uh, Noach Weinberg. Ah, Reb Noach. No, I think the Eshatara. world. Eshatara, yeah. I think the world of Reb Noach. There's one who's now in South Africa. Uh, he's an American, though. His name is Chaim Willis, Michael Willis, and uh, <coughs> Rabbi Willis and I had long discussions, arguments, <coughs> very frank things, and it was very, it was very useful to me. I really appreciated his 100% honesty and not trying to gloss over things. And this is the way we do it. This is why we do it. And you may think it this way, and you know, very straightforward. And right. I, you know, that's what I needed. It was. Uh, Dr. Rick Hodes is here. So now back to the Ethiopian Jews. They need you because they're not going to process uh, people to leave Ethiopia without medical uh, supervision, or they need you just to take care of people who, who are sick and they're worried about them getting to Israel in a specific type of medical situation. What 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 are they calling for, for a doctor like you to do in Ethiopia? For so them? in November of 1989, Israel and Ethiopia reestablished diplomatic relations which had been broken off after the 73 war. <clears throat> Ethiopian Jews heard about this, and they started migrating to Addis Ababa. So by the summer of 1990, there was about 25,000 Jews in Addis Ababa. There was not a good medical system for them, and <clears throat> I think... The first month that we have data, which is about August of 1990, about 34 people died that mm. month. Now, that's the, exactly the number of people you would expect statistically to die in an Ethiopian population that size at that time. Right. But people were understandably upset about that, and the JDC wanted to intervene and do what they could to help. And so JDC started a medical program initially, and it was less successful than it should have been. <clears throat> and I contacted them, and they said, oh, well, we have we are just re- revamping our medical system. And they asked me to come in and be the, the director for six weeks. So I arrived <clears throat> in late 1990 to be the medical director for all these Ethiopians for six weeks. Right. With, with the uh, idea in mind that we're going to get these people to Israel eventually? Or, or Yeah, they were. They were going to Israel at a rate of 1,000 a month. Uh-huh. So there are 25,000 people. They're going exactly 1,000. 
thousand a month. So that means it was going to take more than two years. Right. And who knows what can happen during a civil right. war? And so it's not just a matter of medical clearance to go to Israel. There, literally, people are dying, and they yeah. Need, so these they need th- this community some of these people, of. many of these people are unimmunized. Many of the kids are malnourished. Right. I ended up diagnosing active tuberculosis in three point five percent of the population. Wow. And so we flew in a guy from New York City, a wonderful guy named Dr. Jack Adler, who is the director of tuberculosis control for all of New York City. And Dr. Adler and I worked together to set up a TB program, and so we were able to identify the TB cases and then start them on appropriate. Are they difficult to deal with? I mean, is it is it just a matter of medicine? Is there it's always... a matter of medicine, but it also it's a matter of com- what we call compliance and getting them to take the medicine. Oh, the problem good is point. you need to take you need to take the medicine. You need a cooperative for patient six, for six months. Right. There was a study, a very famous study done at Harlem Hospital. They looked at the rate of people who start TB treatment who finish. Do you know what? how many people finished TB treatment appropriately at Harlem Hospital? 5%. Okay? So that's terrible. It's terrible for the patient. It's terrible for the community because they can be spreading it. Sure. So what you need to do in tuberculosis is you need to have what they call DOT, directly observed therapy. So we had our own network and we had village, we had health workers supervising all of this. On a daily basis. On a daily basis. And so we had directly observed therapy for TB. Unbelievable. Um, for, and this would be for a six month period. Right. Uh, so basically you, I mean, it's, it's not an overstatement to say that you had a direct hand in the health and welfare of thousands of people who ended up living in the state of Israel. No, I've been the doctor for 1% of Israel. Of the entire Israeli population, you One percent of the entire Israeli population before they became Israeli. You were their doctor? Yes. So when I say, when I say Jewish hero, I mean it. One <laughs> percent I mean, of Israel. It's astounding when I think it, about it's it. It's unbelievable. But... Tens of thousands of people. Yes, tens of thousands of people. Right. Have you ever reunited with any of them that you had met originally in Ethiopia? Oh, it happens all the time. I was... What? <clears throat> I was in... Um, in Jerusalem, and I was wait, you know, waiting online to go in a restaurant, and the guy who frisks you before you go in yeah. looks at me, and he starts shouting, and he kisses me. And I said, who's this guy who's kissing me? And it turns out I had saved his wife's life. And she's now living in Israel, I assume. And they're living in Israel, yeah. I mean, and even that is such an astounding story. Listen to the story. These guys were from a very remote area called Quara, okay? She was pregnant. She had malaria. Malaria in pregnancy is a very terrible thing because the placenta becomes like a magnet for the malaria parasite. She gets malaria. She's pregnant. She's in terrible shape. And that's easy for her to die. And it's easy for the fetus to die. What? <clears throat> and there is there are hundreds of miles from a city. It, it would be impossible. By the time they got her to Gondor, she would have died. <clears throat> so this is an unbelievable story. Ethiopian military helicopter is flying overhead and develops engine trouble. It lands in their village. So they fix the engine. These guys went up to the Ethiopian soldiers and they said, this woman is dying. Can you fly her to Gondor? And they said, yeah, if we can get this engine going, we'll be happy to do that. So, you know, this lady's dying in the middle of nowhere. A helicopter lands. We put her inside, flies her to Gondor. She... is very anemic. She needs a blood transfusion. I gave actually a unit of my own blood. 
Um, we got other blood for her as well, and she got her blood transfusion, saved her life, and she's now in Israel. Unbelievable. So you talk about, like, divine intervention. It's like... <laughs> and, th- and this divine intervention you've seen a million times. I mean, you, you tell stories, or there are stories, I should say, in the book about you that are just... I mean, you talk about coincidence. You're at a point in your life where you don't believe in just coincidence anymore. Well, if you're observant Jew, you don't believe... You have right. to believe that God runs the world. Right. And which would be the best example? I know this is a good one, the one you just told, but there are other examples as well of yeah. uh, where someone just happens to be at the right place at the right time. There's actually there's a young boy on the street who was found by the author, right? Found by the author of the book. Yeah, yeah. That was also a, a, a that that you were able to then go go again and find him again was pretty remarkable and get the treatment for him and ends up he ends up living in America, adopted so, by an American family. So there was there was a woman whose eye was popping out because she had a brain tumor the size of an orange in the middle of her brain. Nobody had ever seen anything like this. And I took her picture. I scanned her. I sent this to neurosurgeons. Nobody wanted to touch her. So it seemed like she was going to die, even if it's not a malignant tumor. If you have a tumor growing in the middle of your brain, it's going to squash the brain, and you're going to die. There was no treatment for her. So I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota a few years ago. And I overslept, okay? Oh, I, I wanted, remember this story. Okay, I overslept, yes. and I needed to I needed to get out. So this, we all oversleep sometimes, right? And, and you're on your way to school, right? And Well, so you, you throw your clothes on, you brush your teeth, right. and you go out. But in, in your case and in my case, you throw your tefillin in your backpack so you can daven, you, right? so you can daven when you get a chance right. that, during the morning. Right. So I threw my tefillin in my backpack. The, the guy from the Jewish Federation, a wonderful non-religious guy, um, was taking me around after our first breakfast meeting, because Jews do everything over food. Uh, I said, listen, I haven't done Shachrit today. We have an hour. Can you just take me to a synagogue? Yeah, I could have just said, I'll pray in your car. Right. But I said, can you take me to a synagogue? So he took me to a Haredi synagogue in St. Louis Park. And I walk in. The minion is walking out. And there's one young guy who's studying Talmud with the Rav. And my friend starts talking to the Rav. So I say hi to this guy. And this guy looks at me and I look at him and, you know, we're just looking at each other as these other guys are having a conversation. So I said, oh, I'm going to make conversation with this guy. So I said hi and he says hi. And I said, so what do you do here in Minneapolis? And he said, oh, I'm a doctor. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm also a doctor. I said, what kind of doctor are you? And he said, well, it's very specific. He said, it's skull-based neurosurgery. Oh, my gosh. He said, I'm a neurosurgeon, but I only operate on the bottom of the brain. And I said, well, that's interesting. And he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I do tropical diseases in Africa. Now, this was November in Minneapolis, and I didn't want my computer to freeze in the car, so I literally had it on my shoulder. I open up the computer, and I show him the photograph and the scans of this Muslim woman who was who needed surgery and he says oh my gosh I've never seen anything like that I would love to help her so because of this because I overslept because my alarm didn't go off because of this chance meeting in synagogue (laughs) six months later I brought this Muslim woman in, and we had to she she looked so scary that we actually bought a burqa to cover her face a Muslim burqa we flew to America and I brought her to St. Joseph's Hospital. So you have two Jewish doctors, 
treating a Muslim patient who was raised by Catholic nuns as an orphan, uh, getting free treatment at St. Joseph's Hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota, and she is now okay. Unbelievable. Now, if you had said to me the day before, Rick, if you put on tefillin properly tomorrow, you will save the life of a Muslim woman. If you had pre-warned me, I would have said, that is impossible. That's impossible. How is my putting on tefillin going to save this Muslim woman's life? But that's exactly what happened. Unbelievable. Right? I mean, we read mitzvah, gerodet, mitzvah. Right. And this is an unbelievable example of that. Like, you know, all I wanted to do is put on tefillin. <laughs> you know, I overslept. Oh, I screwed up. I better put on tefillin. You know? Unbelievable. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. Broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. Dr. Rick Hodes is here. The book about his incredible career is called This is a Soul, written by Marilyn Berger, The Mission of Rick Hodes, written by Marilyn Berger. There's an HBO documentary about him. You can search him online and see what kind of Jewish hero he is. couple of things. Um, first of all, you end up... Do this first. What is it like? I assume that you have acceptable living conditions in Ethiopia. I assume you have a home that, you know, that, that, that I, I don't know if it's American standards, but certainly better than most Ethiopians have there, right? That, 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 I assume that that's the type of facility you live in, right? That is, that is true. On a good day, I have running water. Right. I have electricity. Right. <clears throat> and I have a working telephone. Right. On a bad day, I don't have anything. Understood. The the majority of people, and I'm trying, again, I read the book and I'm trying to get a perspective. Is it the majority? Is it just a very large portion of the population are literally living in the streets? Kids who are begging in the streets, you know, all day long. That's essentially what they're doing with, with, with their time. I assume they're not in school. They're just, you know, they're begging for money and trying to live. Many dying of famine. Is that the right perception that, that you are one of the exceptions that you're able to live a quote unquote more normal life while there's so much disease? and poverty around you? No, it's actually much better than what you're describing. So at this point, Ethiopia has a growing economy. Um, there's a lot of unemployment, but the economy is is really booming, and it's growing at about 6% a year. Um, <clears throat> they're even putting a train system in there. There's now, they went from one medical school to 30 medical schools. So there is a lot of stuff going on. On the other hand, it still is one of the poorest countries in the world. <clears throat> the GNP per capita is <clears throat> less than two hundred dollars. I mean, person. they could use another one hundred Rick Hodes there, right? Oh, there's no question. Right. I mean, the the latest the now you have a lot of new medical schools that will be cranking out doctors quite soon. But at this point, there's probably two or three thousand physicians for the country, which has uh, ninety five million people. Right. So we're talking about a very a, a very high uh, patient to doctor ratio, to say yeah. the least, an impossible one uh, to a degree. Um, the, for many of the people that you've treated, it's the first time they've ever met a white person, correct? Forget about meeting a Jew. It's the first time they've ever seen a white person in many cases, right? In the, in, not in Addis Ababa, in the capital, but in the rural areas, for sure. Right, and you've been to many of those villages. Oh, you go into the village, and the kids will go crazy because they've never seen a white person. Right, and they they learn eventually that you're Jewish that you have some connection to Israel, and that is in what way meaningful to them? Ethiopians, they don't, the average sort of uneducated Ethiopian very much likes Israel and has respect for the Jewish people. They don't quite understand what we believe. Um, one of the things is they don't, they don't understand that as Jews, we don't believe in Jesus. Right. 
And so they think that Judaism is some branch of Christianity, mm. and they think that Israel is somehow a Christian country surrounded by Muslim countries. But in fact, I mean, <laughs> most of us don't believe in Jesus. And so when, when I explain, and I, I, you know, if they, I don't, I'm not there to preach my religion right, or even understand. talk about it. But if they ask me, like, oh, you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus, I said, no, I, personally, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in Jesus. Um, so I have to, I sort of explain that we go by what they call the Old Testament. Right. And it ends up because of uh, your ingenuity where you realize that if you adopt children in Ethiopia who are in need of certain medical care, they can get that care under your insurance policy that you end up adopting Ethiopian children, which early on you never would have considered or even thought of doing. Right. So when I had when I met two abandoned orphans with tuberculosis of the spine and terrible deformities, and I couldn't get them free surgery for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons was the surgery is too difficult to do and nobody wanted to touch them. I realized I could adopt them and add them to my health insurance and get them surgery that way. Right. And you legally adopted them? And I, the first two, I legally adopted. They have my name. They have uh, they have everything. <laughs> They've got it all. They even complain like real kids, right? Oh, they're Americans. <laughs> At this point, they are. And in addition to that, your house is filled with people who are in need of medical help or just who have to escape from the situation that they're in. You know about that. How many uh, people are in your home right now? So I have about seven orphans, right. that mostly orphans, not all, who I'm raising and educating. But then the problem is I live in the capital, in Addis Ababa, right. and people who need spine surgery are coming in from the countryside, and if we are going to send them to Ghana, which is where we send them for surgery, or even get surgery in Addis Ababa, as we're doing this week with a wonderful group from Dallas, Texas, uh, they need a place to stay before and after. And if they don't, if they have a relative in Addis, that's fantastic. That's the best situation. Right. They can stay with their aunt and uncle and then come to see me when they need to. But if they don't, I don't want to say you don't have a relative in Addis Ababa, therefore you have to die. Like, you know, that shouldn't be the determinant of life and death. So I say, you can sleep on my living room couch for three months. And they'll move into my house. They'll sleep on the living room couch. I will feed them, you know, from my own pocket. During that period of time, give them money to go to the movies on Sunday, um, and once I feel that they're strong enough, send them back to their village. All right. What does your family think of what you've done over the last quarter of a century? Um, I think they on they're very proud. They have mixed feelings. They'd like to see me more, as any Jewish mother would like to see her <laughs> her oldest son. Do you have siblings? I have two younger brothers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Are they living in the United States? <laughs> they, they live near my mom. <laughs> On the other hand, my mother has eight grandchildren, five of whom are black. Right. Um, and my she, she's met them, I assume. Oh, she they're her grandchildren. Right. I mean, and and she she loves them. She my mother's a ninety years old. She's she has she's never the fact that she has black grandchildren. She thinks of that about sort of the way that you'd think of having a left-handed nephew or something right. like she does she doesn't it doesn't even come up in conversation it means nothing right and i assume she sees how much you mean to them oh I yeah mean, some of them and she actually my mom came to ethiopia one time um and so she's she sees what we do right and uh, your grandmother had a different perspective of your <laughs> uh, of your career she was looking for the more traditional route of rich american doctor right she thought i should have been a cardiologist <laughs> in long island yeah <laughs> She once wrote me a letter. And she was very vocal about it. Yeah, she once wrote me a letter, a one-sentence letter, just said, when are you going to be a normal doctor? 
<laughs> Psychologically, you were able to deal with that? I had no problem. <laughs> It, it's just—it's it, amazing how people will often project onto others what they think will make them happy. Yeah. What makes you happy is doing the work you're doing. Exactly. And you exactly. feel fulfilled, and you feel that you're on a mission, and you're accomplishing that mission. You know, and even you know, now we have a whole spine program. So the the, the all first, developed from what you've done. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The first two spine patients who I wanted to help, I couldn't get treatment for, and I adopted. Right. And then another one came along. Who needed surgery, and I adopted him. Now, serial adoption is probably not the answer to spine. <laughs> you said that in your Brandeis speech. Right. <laughs> they, got, they got a great laugh. I know. So <laughs> serial then, adoption is not the answer for spinal disease in Africa. <laughs> so I had to come up with another solution. And then I met the guy who I really think is the best spine surgeon in the world. And he is from Ghana in West Africa. He's a great American success story. He practices in New York. Well, he, he, he left New York now. But ah. I mean, he left New York about a year ago. But, he, but he, when you met him, he was in New York, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. His name is Ohana Boboachi Ajay. People right. call him Dr. Boachi. He moved to America when he was 18 from Ghana, worked his way through Brooklyn College, Columbia Medical School, <clears throat> spine training in New York, and then, I uh, know, uh, orthopedic training in New York, spine training in Minnesota, and he became a fantastic surgeon and throughout his career has taken on some of the most difficult patients in the world. He's now back in Accra, Ghana. He has his own hospital, his own organization, which is called FOCUS, F-O-C-O-S, the Foundation for Orthopedics and Complex Spines. And they are operating on our kids, you know, every day, if um, often every single day of the week. Right. So right now we have 48 kids in Ghana for surgery. And Dr. Bocci is, we put them into traction and we operate. Now, traction is an amazing thing. What you do in, with these traction cases, you have these kids who are very, very twisted and very deformed. You drill four holes in the skull. Right. You put a halo around and right. you stretch them. Right. And you stretch them 23 hours a day when they sit in a wheelchair, when they walk with a booth around them, and when they lie down at night. So they're, they're being stretched 23 hours a day. And then you go ahead and operate. And you often operate under traction as well. And we're able to make tremendous, tremendous um, strides in lengthening them, in straightening them, and in completely turning their life around. So we've now done surgery on over 400 patients. When I started the spine program in 2006, we had 20 new spine patients. Last year, 2014, we had 400 new spine patients. Unbelievable. Is there ever is this is this a a contagious disease? Is that why it just keeps becoming so more? It, it seems to be more and more prevalent in that area of the world. So some of them, some of it is probably perhaps genetic. It certainly there are cases where it runs in families. Some of it is birth defects where you're born with malformed vertebra. Those we call that congenital scoliosis. Right. Some of it we don't know. We call that idiopathic. And some of it is infectious in that it's caused by polio. And caused by tuberculosis. Now, once you have it, you're not going to transmit it to your to your brother. Right. But it it's caused by an infection. Right. And these are all things that we would not see in a normal New York hospital. No, no. They're, I mean, not... we may have some old polio cases here from immigrants right. and uh, and things like but that. We but we of... don't have polio. We don't have fresh cases of polio in the United yeah, States. Yeah, and when we think of scoliosis in general, we're talking about you know slight problems that have to be adjusted. Usually, that's what we think of. Right. So the the recommend in America, three percent of Americans have spinal deformities, um, and the recommendation would be for to get surgery when the spinal deformity is about fifty degrees. Right. And that's not terribly difficult surgery for a good American spine surgeon. 
Right. Unbelievable. Dr. Rick Hodes is here. A couple of things I, I must get in. And one is there are probably, and I pray there are, because so often with this radio show it happens, there are probably doctors listening to this radio show right now, or maybe medical personnel who are not necessarily doctors, maybe nurses and others who think they can help, who likely want to either get involved with your work or maybe they think they can offer, because of their expertise, to either operate or you know deal with some of the patients that you've described this morning. How would they go about volunteering their efforts? Is there such a thing? You know, I have a website, uh, rickhodes.org. They can contact me through the website, and we can correspond and see what, what we might be able to do. And you have found doctors who've helped people, like, like the one you described with its filling situation, you have found doctors with with the craziest methods, just people you either happen to meet or folks who uh, you know got in touch with you, and they were very helpful in the end. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I'm very successful. I mean, one, one German nurse, we have a woman with a tumor the size of a bowling ball on her jaw. One German nurse came to Mother Teresa's mission and said, can you show me around? And I showed her around, and I showed her this patient. She said, oh, I know a doctor in Munich who can operate on her. And I said to myself, yeah, right. <clears throat> and I said, oh, have him contact me. Here's my card. So <clears throat> a few weeks later, I get this email from this doctor, Peter Cornelius, in Munich, Germany. And he says, you know, I operate on patients with ba- major jaw deformities. Can I help you? And I, frankly, didn't believe that he could do this. And I said, can you show, send me a picture of patients that you've operated on? He sent me a picture of a girl from Nepal who had a huge, huge tumor on half of her face before and after. And after, she looked beautiful. And I wrote back and I said, you're hired. <laughs> and I sent him all the information. And then... He had to raise money. In, in countries with socialized medicine, such as Germany, Canada, and Israel, you can't bring people from outside the country because you're taking away the resources of the local people. Right. So you somehow have to reimburse the system. He worked with his people, and they said, we want 35,000 euros. <clears throat> um, the hospital said, we want 35,000 euros to pay for her care. And that's quite reasonable. So he went to the Bavarian Dental Association and They wrote me a letter. I sent all the information. So Rick Hodes from the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee writing to the Bavarian Medical Association with all the information. They put an article about this in the Munich newspaper with her picture. They wanted to raise 35,000 euros. They ended up raising 135,000 euros. Unbelievable. And then we brought her to Germany, and, and she's now fine. Not only that... Now they've probably done 20 cases of mine over the years. Unbelievable. And you, th- th- there's a section of the book that describes your day. Um, anybody listening to this conversation for the last 40 minutes are probably wondering how you possibly keep track of all these people that you have met and every patient with every one of their circumstances. I mean, you've been in situations where you're meeting hundreds of patients a day, right? One after the other and just trying to get to as many as possible. Some of them so desperate for help, you're trying to speed through the process. It must be a, almost impossible to remember everything about all of them. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so there's there's a lot of moving parts. So I like to have an assistant at my side mm. who can, you know, and I can just dictate <clears throat> as we see a patient, put him on the American list, put him on the Ghana list. Mm. This one, you know, the, so the, the other thing that I do that we haven't even discussed yet is I help people with heart disease, people with rheumatic and congenital heart disease. I send to India to a Hindu hospital in Cochin. And so I'll say... 
put them on the next India list. We need to send them immediately. Or, again, these things happen. We had 11 patients in India quite recently, just a few weeks ago, and they were getting their heart surgeries. And the next day, two boys, after they left, Two boys walked in with very, very tight mitral stenosis. The valve area of one of them was 0.47. It should be 4.0. And I ended up <coughs> contacting my Indian people saying, I have two boys I have to send to you right now. I have the team already there. I have the translator already there. We worked them up. We got them a visa, put them on the plane on a Saturday morning. They got off the plane on a Sunday. The next day, Monday, they went into the cath lab. Uh, their valves were ballooned open. The guy who started out with a valve of 0.47 ended up with a valve area of 2.6. This guy feels like an Olympic athlete now <laughs> because he can actually walk. Unbelievable. And the data on that is that statistically 10 years from now, he has a 75% chance of still being functional. Right. Uh, which would not have been the case, obviously. Oh, he would be. He would have died within a year. Um, is it sometimes... First of all, what's Shabbos like in Ethiopia? Is it, is it any different than the... And first of all, the children that you've adopted, you've not, you have not insisted in any way that... Uh, uh, they become members of the Jewish faith. You, you have you have multi faiths living in your home. Right. You, so, encu- you do encourage them to go to school and continue their own traditions, right? Absolutely. Right. And so some of the kids feel more Jewish than others. <laughs> um, <laughs> last night, you know, I, I spent. I, I'm staying in New York, and my son, <clears throat> who graduated from American Hebrew Academy in Greensboro, North Carolina, Mazel tov. Um, is here. Uh, he's studying here at Pace, and. He he asked me. He wants to go down and spend Shabbos in North Carolina and um, go to the the, the graduation um, of the school, right. which is on Memorial Day. So uh, some of them feel more Jewish, some of them feel less Jewish. What we do, but I'm the place to come for Shabbos. Right. And it used to be that I was almost the only place to come. Now there's actually a Chabad presence in Ethiopia as well. Where's the rabbi from? Israel. He's he's French Israeli. Unbelievable. Yeah. And does he get a crowd? Are there people he's who... A, he's an interesting guy. He's a messianic. He's an open messianic Chabad guy. Right. Um, but he, he, his English is, is not the greatest, so the crowd that he gets is more of an Israeli crowd. Right. And how far is that from you? Um, he lives a bit on the other side of town. I've actually never been to his place because I do Shabbos myself. Right. And people come to my house for Shabbos. So <laughs> they stay often. I mean, if they're observant, they'll stay in the local places around. Right. And then they'll come and, and eat with us for Shabbos. Right. I, I assume And we have our own way of doing it. So, for example, when we do Shabbos, uh, we start out by – first um, – we don't wear normal kippas. We wear funny Ethiopian hats, and we have a whole bag of these hats. And we put we put on the hats, and um, you know you can choose what hat you want. And then we start out by standing in a circle, holding hands, and singing "If I Had a Hammer," the Pete Seeger song. <laughs> and you're being serious. This is a, this oh, is a, this is what we do. This is the ritual. Yeah, <laughs> we're doing Zmiros. You're doing "If I Had a Hammer." <laughs> yeah, so we do. You know. I hammer out danger, I sing out warning, I'd sing about love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land. Mm-hmm. We go. do that, and then we introduce ourselves, and then we do Shalom Aleichem. Right. And start the festive meal. Right, and Shabbos so we meal. don't have kosher wine, right. so we do Kiddush over bread. Right. And I assume that there's limited kosher meat in Ethiopia, but I don't think, did I, did I read correctly? You're not a meat eater? Or? I don't eat meat. Oh, you don't eat meat, don't so eat it's meat. not an now, issue. The rabbi, the Chabad rabbi, right. I understand, is a shochet. But, right. um, and then we actually, we had a shochet for a while. Um, there was a small business community from Aden in South Yemen. Ah. Um, and one of those gentlemen 
was a shochet. Now, he wasn't Shomer Shabbos, um, but he was a shochet, and if you wanted to eat his meat, that was one option. Right. Um, at, at some point in the book, it's described, I don't remember exactly, but there's a, a scene or an episode where where there's a child, and you know that if the child is on one side of the wall, they're going to be treated. If they're on the other side of the wall, they're going to be in a sea of others, of thousands of kids that are deprived and are you know, in, in a famine situation. I don't remember exactly. I think it was outside of Mother Teresa's... Um, uh, compound, you know, and 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 I, I think you were thinking to yourself how you know how unbelievable it is that you know a step this way and they can get care, step this way they're abandoned for life or likelihood is they're abandoned for life. It must be very frustrating that you have you know all these adopted kids and you've done so much for hundreds if not thousands of people and it isn't in thousands obviously of people, but yet you know that on the quote unquote other side of the fence there's millions that are suffering from the same thing that these people suffered. Is it in fact more frustrating, or as your work continues, it just becomes more rewarding because, you know, you're taking away from that large group and helping these isolated few? You know, if if it's easy to become frustrated, and I become, like, frustrated and overwhelmed at least, at least once a day, <laughs> but... I, you know, if you look at the from the other perspective, I mean, there are thousands of people who are alive because of what I do, right. and I try to remind myself of that. And you know, <clears throat> I'm one guy, and I'm doing the best I can, right. and I'm trying to establish a whole network of of help. And uh, and, lo, lo, and I have JDC behind me. And lo alecha hamlacha ligmar. It's not your job yes. to save all the millions. You just have to do what you need to do. And look what you're doing compared to. Uh, some of us who feel guilty that we don't spend enough time helping those who are underprivileged. Uh, and you mentioned... I, and I never thought, when I adopted two two kids because, to help them get spine surgery, I never sp- felt that I would be spending the next decade taking care of spine patients, that right now I have 2,000 patients with spinal deformities, that we've had over 400 successful surgeries and so on. So, I mean, right. if you look back on what we've done, it's in- astounding. Right. Um, not, not to focus, again, that much on... Uh, but maybe it's a good idea to focus on it because sometimes we we ourselves forget how lucky we are to be able to you know open the fridge and have food at the ready and all the other things you mentioned whether it's be electricity running water etc but you know i started this conversation and you commented how my perception of ethiopia is a little different than it really is today today's a little bit better but nonetheless in so many of the villages and so many of the outlying areas there there the, the, there is playing out or there are playing out these scenes of overwhelming poverty where where kids will not eat for an entire day or longer right is that is that correct so there's or? there's relative malnutrition in the countryside for sure um and you know there can be shortage of as shortages of food someone needs fresh water they may have to walk how many miles to get it so um Women carry water. I mean, women many may, miles, right? Many miles. They may, depending on where you are and how lucky you are to have a well, they may be going a long, a long, long distance. You've met kids who became your patients who were in life-threatening situations who walked how many miles? You had situations where kids walked. No, kids, kids come to me from all over the country. But literally, I mean, and they, they literally, they may ride in a bus for three days to get to me. Right. Plus, in addition to that, walk twenty, thirty miles. Right? Yeah. I mean, so when we're doing a history to try to figure out whether they're a surgical candidate, we'll say, where do you live? And they'll say where they are. And we say, okay, how do you get there? How many hours by bus? And then how long do you have to walk? So if they say, well, it's a three-hour bus ride, and then it's a three-hour walk. You know, so that's really remote. And then we have to think, how is this person going to do having spine surgery and living in this village with spinal rods or spinal rods that need adjustment? So that these are things that we have to consider because we want it to be successful. And if you can't do it well, you shouldn't be doing it. Right. 
Um, I mentioned earlier that there are hopefully physicians in this audience that are going to be in touch with you. Maybe they could lend their help. What about people who want to fund these surgeries? Because you, it, it's written here in the book that the surgeries average ten thousand dollars per per patient. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's even more these days. It's more like <clears throat> let's say somebody in this audience wants to sponsor a patient. How do they do it? Uh, go to my website and contact me. And, Simple uh, as that. Yeah. Also, you know, so this is you know this is a JDC non-sectarian project. Right. So the checks are made out to JDC. 100% of the money goes into my budget line, and we use it for our medical care for hearts and for spines. Right. Sometimes, and I know this might be hard to believe. Um, uh, sometimes people are skeptical about Jewish organizations and the work they do or don't do, uh, the type of work they do for Jews around the world. Uh, sometimes people are frustrated that, that many of their efforts are not being used in the Jewish community around the world, etc., etc. And I grew up knowing about the work of the Joint Distribution Committee. Uh, in my home, it was known simply as the Joint. That's right. how, my, how my father always referred to it. And it, 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 I think I have to use this opportunity, after you opened up my eyes through my research about you, I have to use this opportunity to to um, remind everybody how proud we need to be of these organizations. They did an amazing job, as you can attest to, on the front lines of Ethiopian Jewish health and aliyah, as you described earlier. Really a remarkable job. And then in addition to that, the the incredible goodwill and the amazing uh, reputation that the Jewish world and the people of Israel and folks like yourself get because of what JDC is doing for your efforts is remarkable. And I think as Jews, we, we again, you know, in our own provincial way, sometimes forget that, that our outreach to other people in this world is so vital and, and looked upon with such great favor. With, with, and if you could just, you know, echo that for me about the work of JDC and how important this is in terms of, uh, you know, Jewish pride around the world, I'd appreciate it. Right. And so, for example, Ethiopia is a country of 95 million people. It's two-thirds Christian. It's one-third Muslim. <clears throat> Even at the, you know, the height of the Jewish population, they were, uh, you know, less than 1% of the population of, e- of Ethiopia. And for us as a Jewish organization <clears throat> to go in and help everybody, we are so well thought of and we have created so much goodwill. <clears throat> it's fantastic. I mean, and so <clears throat> I've had... You know, very traditional Muslims come to me, um, and we're happy to treat their kids, and I'll say to them, um, I just want to let you know this is a project of, of the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, right. and many of our donors are from the American Jewish community, <clears throat> and I just, as the infomercial, that's what I say, right. and they're astounded because they may not, they may not hear that Jews do good stuff, or they may right. not hear that Jews are trying to help other people. Well, that's what I got from the book, that you, and the JDC, and the State of Israel, uh, uh, become amazing ambassadors for the Jewish people with this type of work. I mean, it's just incredible. We don't think of it that way, of how others are perceiving us. But you're able to expose to us just what it is that others think of us when we get involved in this type of work. So this is an amazing example. I was called by a German Catholic nun last year that there was a boy, <clears throat> a Muslim boy, who was mauled by a hyena. And he was in her hospital. She has a hospital outside Addis Ababa. And he needed extensive surgery. And she heard that I had surgical connections. Could I help this boy? And she said to me, I'll send you some pictures. So I said, I need to see the patient because if I'm going to send this out to other doctors, they need to know that I myself have examined the patient. Can right. you send me the kid? 
So we move the kid to Addis Ababa, put the kid and his dad in Mother Teresa's mission. This is like an eight-year-old boy who was playing with his friends in the in his village, and uh, a hyena came along and literally attacked him, and his father was nearby. His wonderful father heard some noise. He went running, and he saw the hyena eating his son. His father said to himself, if this hyena is going to kill my son, he's going to have to kill me first. And he starts fighting with the hyena, knowing that one bite of the hyena would kill him as well. So the hyena at that point took off and ran away. The guy was left with a son who was near death. They got the son to this Catholic hospital. They nursed the kid back to health. His new, his wound was in good shape, but he had this he he had been scalped. He had no scalp. He had lost his eye. He had lost an ear. And we didn't know it. He would lost the <coughs> top of his jawbone as well. So he needed extensive surgery. So I have this kid and I'm imaging him and taking pictures and trying to figure out what to do. That night, I had friends visiting from Dallas, Texas. And over dinner, I said to my friends, you wouldn't believe this kid I got. His name is Abdul Razak. He's a <coughs> Muslim. Garage is the ethnic group. Muslim from several hours outside of Addis. And he's in terrible shape. He needs extensive plastic surgery. I just sort of said out loud, what am I going to do? <laughs> and Ron Romaner turns to me and he says, Rick, you know, I'm very active in this organization called Friends of the Western Galilee Hospital. He said, maybe Western Galilee Hospital can help you. He said, can you send me an email with the information? So I said, yeah, sure. So within hours, I put together a case summary and the medical photographs, and I sent it to this guy. He sent it on to the Western Galilee Hospital. I got the head of Western Galilee Hospital called me the next day, and he said, when can you get this kid here? So I said, oh, my gosh, you really want him. So first of all, we had to get the guy a passport. We managed to get him a passport. Then we went to the Israeli embassy to get a visa. While we were in the visa line, the Ethiopian, the Israeli ambassador to Ethiopia, whose name is Balainesh, and she's a personal friend, she herself is Ethiopian, um, called me on my cell phone. She says, Dr. Rick, I understand you're in the embassy. Um, can you come to my office when you finish with the patient? I said, sure. So we went to her office. We had this very nice conversation. Um, as we were sitting in her office, she said, excuse me, um, I'll be back in a couple of minutes. So we sit there um, with her husband, and she went off somewhere. She came back five minutes later with two pairs of pants and two shirts from her own kids to give to this boy. <laughs> and we were walking out. The dad turns to me and says, doctor, what kind of ambassador gives you clothes from her own kids? Oh. And I said, a Jewish mother. You could say that again. <laughs> and he couldn't believe it. What he told me later, he said in his village, which is a 100% Muslim village, he said if they want to insult somebody, they don't say go to hell. Right. They say go to Israel. <laughs> because Israel and hell, it's the same thing. So we got the visa, we got an airplane ticket, and we put the, the dad and the kid on the plane. They flew... Ethiopian Airlines to Tel Aviv. They were transported to Naharia, northern Israel. He he was in the hospital for nine weeks. He had extensive surgeries. Every time they would put him under anesthesia, they would have several teams operate on him. So they had the plastics team, the ENT team, like that. 
The kid did very well. At one point, he needed to have his a new jawbone made, so they put him under anesthesia. They took bone from his rib. They made a new jawbone. They had to keep him completely immobilized. So they said to the dad, we're going to induce a coma for nine days and have him asleep. He's going to be eat- He's going to be alive, but he's going to be asleep. The machine's going to breathe for him and we're going to feed him so he's going to be fine the dad could not understand that his son had not died the father was 100% convinced that the kid had died so he was like this for nine days and then as the father tells the story the father says and then after nine days his soul returned to him and he woke up that's exactly what Mm -hmm. he says and in Hebrew um, you know the word for soul is nefesh in Amharic the word for soul is nefs so he says the nefs returned to him and he woke up. And now he's a, like a normal kid. I mean, he, he doesn't look fantastic, but he's much, he's a, he's a functional kid and he's psychologically intact, which is fantastic. So he had this guy spent nine weeks in Israel, um, in Naharia hospital. And I said, you know, did they treat you well? He said, did they treat me well? It was fantastic. It was unbelievable. And I said, were you able to pray as a Muslim? He said, there was a full mosque inside the hospital, <laughs> he said, for the Muslim patients and for the hospital staff. And he said, not only that, he said, every night they would go to the Syrian border and bring in wounded Syrian kids who were pushed across the border and treat them for free. He, This guy is now Israel's greatest, greatest, greatest ambassador. I can only so imagine. I was, wow. my, my goal was to save this one kid's life. This kid has created so much goodwill. This dad's feeling towards Israel has spread throughout Ethiopia, and people hundreds of miles away know about this kid. So I got a call from a friend several months later who said he was pre- speaking to the president of Afar region. It's a Muslim region in distal Ethiopia. And the guy said... <clears throat> um, where are you from? And my friend said, I'm from Israel. And he said, oh, you know, we used to hate Israel. And he said, oh, why did you, what changed your mind? And he said, they took one of our kids and saved his life. And my friend, who didn't know anything about this, said, do you know about Israel taking a kid who was b- bitten by a hyena? And I said, yes, I'm the doctor. I'm the one who sent him. He said, they know about this in the Afar region. So it created tremendous goodwill. Unbelievable. I'll tell you, just incredible. At the... Um Brandeis commencement 2014, 2013 or yeah. 14, one of those years. Um, you, you, uh, it was May of 2013, May of 2013. You now face lots of practical questions, where to live, how to get a job, how you could use your great education. I want to say don't be shy, have chutzpah. Wayne Gretzky was one of the greatest hockey players of all time. He said you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take, so take your shots. Is that your message to this audience as well? That I think so. There's a lot of dreams out there that people have. Yeah, a lot, a especially of, when you have young people and they're thinking what they're going to do with their life. Um, I would say, you know, don't limit yourself. Expand and th- think, see what you want to do. I mean, if you want to be an accountant in Jersey City, God bless you. If it's going to make you happy, then do a great job. On the other hand, if you want to be a doctor in Ethiopia, you can do that too. <laughs> to support the amazing work of Dr. Rick Hodes, uh, you can uh, you can go to his website rickhodes.org. As we mentioned earlier, each surgery of the uh, spinal surgeries that he described are ten thousand dollars or more at this point, uh, and all donations are welcome. You'll find information there how you could support it. If you are a doctor that feels in any way that you, as a uh, as a wonderful doctor, can be helpful 
uh, either by going to Ethiopia and helping on the spot or by taking patients here, or if you heard of a specialty this morning, you went through a lot of different specialties this morning. Yeah. There's a lot of different uh, problems that people have. If you're involved in a specialty that you think could help one of these specific patients that Dr. Rick Hodes described, and certainly be in touch with him, Rick Hodes, H-O-D-E-S, Dot org. He'll be more than happy to hear from you, and hopefully uh, somebody who's been listening this morning will be able to be not only a help, but add to being a light onto the nations, as Rick Hodes is. You are glorifying the name of God, in my opinion, every single day, what we call a Kiddush Hashem. And that's one of the reasons it's such an honor to meet you this morning. So thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate it. The book is called This is a Soul, The Mission of Rick Hodes, written by Marilyn Berger. The HBO documentary, if you could remind me, was so called... There's one called Making the Crooked Straight. Making the and that's screen. available on uh, Amazon and all these other places. There's a new documentary film called Zemene, Z-E-M-E-N-E, and it's about there was another film crew making a different documentary, and they happened to be with me when I met um, a very sick girl with spine surgery, an orphan in rural Gondor, and <clears throat> we found her. We ended up uh, bringing her back to her village, moving her to Addis Ababa, and it's the story of her life. It's one best documentary at several fe- several festivals, and it's re- really doing fantastic. Amazing. All right, so everyone can check those out and learn more about the amazing career of uh, Dr. Rick Hodes. Best regards to your entire family. Thank you. In Ethiopia. I hope, I hope they'll be uh, tuning into the archives to listen to this great radio show. Dr. Rick Hodes on a Thursday morning broadcast at JM in the AM.